Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 29th, 2024, Leap Day. Could they actually leap over Biden and dump him edition? I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm joined, I'm in Washington, D.C., by the way. Uh, and I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York City. Hello, John. Hi. And from New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. This week on the GabFest, anxiety increases among Democrats as uncommitted wins 100,000 votes in an uncontested Michigan primary against Joe Biden. Then the Supreme Court, here's a pair of fascinating cases about social media platforms, censorship, and the First Amendment, and also dockets, the big Trump immunity case. And then Mitch McConnell is stepping down as the Republican Senate leader after perhaps the most effective career of any politician this century. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, or not even a reminder, an announcement, we are going to be live in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, March 27th at 7.30 at the Hamilton. There's going to be a pre-show cocktail party as well. You can get tickets at slate.com slash GabFest live. That's going to be a live show on Wednesday evening, March 27th here in D.C. New venue, the Hamilton. It's great. Um, It's going to fill up fast. So get your tickets. And we have a special guest that we're going to announce soon. Are we believe we have a special guest that we're going to announce soon. Um, and it's going to be really fun. So we'd love to see you there. It's going to be our first live show of the new year. It's going to be coming at a moment of all kinds of legal action and political action. So it's going to be a great moment for discussion. Slate.com slash GabFest live for tickets. Uncommitted had an amazing night in Michigan this week, capturing more than 100,000 votes in the Democratic primary. As Zach Gorchow talked about on our Slate Plus segment last week, any number over 50,000 was going to be a blow to Biden. And Uncommitted just crashed through that to get to 100,000 and 13% of the vote. Uncommitted uh, was a movement organized originally by Arab Americans unhappy with Biden's full-throated support of Israel in the Gaza war. Um, and the, the, the Uncommitted vote won majorities in two big Arab-American cities of Michigan, the two big Arab-American cities, Dearborn and Hamtramck. But it also picked up big votes in Michigan's college towns. So, John, how dismaying or shocking should this be for Biden's team? I guess when I think about that question, I think about where does it fit in the priorities that they have to face to get reelected? Like, they, they have a lot of challenges for Biden. And so... Is this a challenge? Yes. How big a challenge it is, is it? And more, more crucially, how much can they really do about it? If the answer to solving this problem is get peace in the Middle East, well, who'd have thought of that, right? Like the question, it's kind of like what we were talking about with respect to what Biden could do to overcome um, questions about his age. Well, he could go out and be vigorous and do lots of public events. Well, being vigorous and doing lots of public events has all kinds of downsides, as we saw from President Biden speaking about the possibility of a hostage exchange while eating an ice cream ice cream cone as a part of the Seth Meyers appearance. I got a little cash. Anybody want ice cream? <laughs> yeah, okay. You turn the camera. Do you want any food? Yes. <laughs> Not a bribe. Can you give us a sense of when you think that ceasefire will start? 
Well, I hope by the, the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least hey, my, yeah. my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. That wasn't the greatest uh, visuals to be talking about the exchange of prisoners and hostages. Um, So there are all kinds of challenges to getting Middle East peace. So could you even fix the problem? Yes, it's a problem. 100,000 is a big number. It's a big number because he won the state by 150,000 against Trump. So but a lot of Democrats turned out for Biden, which made the percentage um, 13 percent against Obama in 2012. Uncommitted got about 11 percent now. It got to, that that uncommitted vote was only 20,000 votes. So 100,000 is a great deal more than 20,000. So I'm not trying to downplay, just trying to put it in perspective. Then the question is, really, when the choice gets framed um, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Donald Trump's policies not only are going to be identical or worse with respect to the uh, Israel-Hamas war, but people might be reminded that Donald Trump was the one who wanted to ban Muslims from coming into the United States. So that might change it. So the question is, could they? can they do a lot about it? Might gravity help them? Then the final point, of course, is Michigan is a super crucial state for Biden in the general election, one of the key battleground states. And, and it's hard to think of how he wins without winning Michigan. Yeah, it's, it's right now it's the tipping point state for Biden. And he's polling behind Trump and has kind of been consistently polling poorly there, Emily. Do you, do you think, to John's point, that there's any policy shift that Biden could realistically make on Gaza or on issues that are animating progressive students that wouldn't hurt him in other ways and be backfire in other ways? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really complicated and hard, but I think, I mean, first of all, the war could end. I mean, the war is serving the interests primarily of Benjamin Netanyahu keeping his government in power in Israel, and then Hamas, which, you know, is watching Israel's acceptance around the world deteriorate, which is something that the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman wrote about this week. So that's, I think, a huge part of what's happening is the war and all the deaths of Palestinians in Gaza. I also think that moving toward supporting Palestinian self-determination and statehood is really important. And the Biden administration has been saying those things and distancing itself from Netanyahu's government, but not really pushing and not confronting Netanyahu. I mean, there is, don't you guys think like it's in Netanyahu's interest for Trump to get elected in the fall because Trump will be much more pro his right-wing policies than Biden. And you just have this feeling that Biden has not figured out how to take on Netanyahu in a way that's good for Biden politically. And obviously, you know, the United States and Israel have this longstanding friendship and allyship, and there's lots of history there. But at some point, it just seems like maybe Netanyahu is taking Biden down and Biden has got to figure out how to get out of that trap. Well, Biden might care about something more than the politics at the moment. I mean, in other words, he's not going to be able to do anything to fix the uncommitted issue right now at this current moment. Um, So like breaking with Netanyahu might have all kinds of other consequences, including the U.S.'s ability to actually influence events to the extent they can do anything. Um, It's got to be the roads have to lead through Netanyahu. I mean, play out what's the strategy if he breaks with Netanyahu or if he had broken with Netanyahu a month ago, how that works. It doesn't seem like Netanyahu is really listening to particularly in a public sense, pressure from the United States. Like, 
So Biden breaks with him and then Netanyahu does what that is in the positive aims of the uncommitted vote. I mean, I don't think Netanyahu is ever going to do anything in the positive aims of anything that people are voting uncommitted care about. But Netanyahu does not necessarily stay in power. I mean, there isn't an yeah, election yeah. scheduled for two years, but he could get ousted sooner. And I, you know... There has been this argument that, you know, if Biden confronts him, that that will only strengthen him. But I'm I'm becoming increasingly skeptical of that and just feeling some sense of urgency about that whole situation. I don't think he can do anything right now. I'm talking about looking ahead to the election. Exactly. So if Biden can't do anything right now, his maximum leverage over Netanyahu is by not publicly breaking with Netanyahu. If that's true, which it feels like it is, then his then the best way for him to be effective with respect to the actual crisis is to work in the inside game with Netanyahu instead of having a break, even though a break might be more palatable to the people in Michigan in who voted uncommitted. Given how many people voted uncommitted, there is a new energy among Democrats who want Biden to consider stepping off the ticket to allow someone else, someone they say could be more likely to win against Trump to to have a shot. Is there? Emily, yeah. What do you mean is there? Is there, is there new yeah. energy? Well, there's just definitely yeah. lots of discussion. No, no. Yeah. There are I mean, lots of there Klein Klein Ezra Klein wrote a piece and but I mean look at Dean Phillips. The guy he got fewer votes than Marion Williamson who's out of the race. If there was all this huge energy to dump Biden that wasn't related to this very specific point we've been discussing, don't you think the the alternative candidate would have gotten more than two point whatever he got. Well, I don't, but I don't think anyone thinks that Dean Phillips is the person who is is the great standard bearer the Democrats could run against Trump. I think they have a fantasia that you know a, a brokered convention. But who's they? Puts forward put a Raphael Warnock candidacy with Gretchen Widmer. Right, but I, mean, I don't but, know but who I mean, that they that, is, John. But Ezra, Ezra Klein is Ezra Klein is one of the most you know prominent figures writing in the left in this country. And Ezra is hazarding it. And there's a lot of commentary on it. I, you can tell why it's, you can explain why it's no, 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 idea. but there's commentary about it. But my point is if there was lots of unfocused active energy that was anti-Biden or that was, we got to get something else. It's not well, crazy to think that it would show up in some way in Michigan. Well, didn't a hundred, a hundred thousand people right, right, showed, showed up and voted we've for We've already talked about how that has a specific okay, sense. Well, and also if you look at how Biden has voted in the rest of the primaries so far, they roughly tracked what Obama did in 2012, except in New Hampshire. Let's agree that the punditry class is having a big That's for sure. The punditry Let's class is different, but the difference, but 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 it's crucial. Well, first because, of all, that's the class we belong because to. The cru- <laughs> I understand, class. but you got to frame it with respect to the punditry class because it's really <laughs> important because one of the things that Biden did well in 2020 is his campaign ignored the punditry class and the super online class, and that's why he won. That's why he won the nomination. Like, it's a key skill of his. So framing what's real and what's not is like a super crucial question in this moment. Fair. You accept it. It's, it's, just, it's just Ezra Klein and, and two people having dinner with him who were talking about this. If there are any arguments in favor of what Ezra is saying, I think the arguments are that Biden is Biden's age, his frailty, his apparent inability to campaign effectively are extremely damaging to him in an, in a race against Trump uh, that in 2020, he got more or less a pass on campaigning. He didn't have to campaign. So nobody had to actually see him campaign because of COVID. He, he campaigned from, from his, his house. 
uh, and to actually have to go out and present an argument for what he's doing and what he's done is something he cannot do well. And he's polling very poorly against Trump. And therefore, it's a possibility that someone who has more energy, who can articulate a democratic vision more vividly, could animate younger voters, animate some of these voters who are turning away, and and wage an effective campaign against Trump and win. The problem, of course, I mean, there's so many problems. You guys can now outline all the problems. Well, one problem is the magical thinking about how we get to this special someone else, because the obvious person is Vice President Kamala Harris. Ezra talked about her as this deeply unappreciated uh, politician or underestimated politician. I don't he didn't present any evidence for that. I don't see any myself. And then you have this kind of fantasy of this brokered convention. And Jamel Bowie, I thought, um, did a really good job of explaining that the convention doesn't represent constituencies in the way that it used to, that now it's like largely symbolic. And so the notion that even if they did come up with the magical Whitmer Warnock ticket, it's not clear that it would really have a lot of legitimacy after everybody has voted for Biden. And then there's the question of like, could Biden really, I mean, he would have all the delegates, they would have Back, they would be committed to supporting him. And so it would be really up to him. And then it probably would be Kamala Harris. And we kind of get back into this loop of whether this is really a stronger ticket. One of the things that's been most, I think, impressive about this public um, debate among Democratic intellectuals is or political intellectuals. Is, I like it. They've gone from pundits to intellectuals now. Um, well, I mean, I think you have to put Jamel and Ezra in that in that category. I think the the super online reaction is dumb, but the the articles that were written both in favor of the idea and against it were all serious, didn't like do a bunch of stupid mode of questioning and actually showed an incredibly sophisticated understanding of politics, primaries. It was really a joy to read all of the different um, arguments. I think the only thing I would add to what um, both of you have said is that um, uh, one of Ezra's claims also is that there is a structure in place for a brokered convention um, and therefore it could manage um, this kind of open free for all. I think the problem is that that structure is highly antiquated. It comes from a, a time in politics long before uh, the reforms of 1972 and the general um, increase in the voice of the people over the voice of the party. The structured convention, the, the brokered convention was a was a a product of um, a completely boss-centered um, party or a highly boss-centered party, which started to crumble in 1960 in the Democratic Party with Kennedy's defeat of the bosses by using the primaries, an amazing thing. Um, and then I think Jamel, of all, the, all of them, really put most beautifully the important thing, which is that this um, – what gives candidates legitimacy is the process, not the brokered part. It's the it's the getting the votes and that without that legitimacy, you you would elevate a weakened candidate. And of course, the other point which everybody made, but which is important, is that when you have inter interparty fights and actually it's not in the primary context where you can all talk about how bad Donald Trump is. The fights tend to be over really small things and everybody gets pushed to the left because they're all trying to distinguish themselves from the other person, which means you would have a national right. advertisement right. about the most liberal things right. right at a time when you're supposed to be right. looking for voters more towards the middle. Right. And then I'll add the one other thing, which I would call the Ron DeSantis, the Ron DeSantis uh, factor, which is that 
all candidates, all hypothetical candidates are unicorns who, who fart car- cotton candy uh, until they are actually tested. And then you don't know. Like there, it's entirely possible that on a national stage, Gretchen Widmer would be the greatest candidate since since Bill Clinton. Very possible since Barack Obama. But it's also possible that that this person who gets anointed turns out to be an absolute dud, as we saw with with DeSantis. So so it's that's enormously risky. I want to give a huge thank you to our Slate Plus listeners because of listeners like you. In fact not just like you, you. We've been able to keep doing the GabFest for so long and you get so much good stuff for your subscription. Bonus segments on every episode, special discounts to live shows like our live show coming up in DC, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, so much more. This week for our Slate Plus segment, uh, we're going to be talking about the increasingly elaborate even unhinged efforts by the Republican House to pin some kind of corruption charge on Joe Biden via his family. But this segment is just for Slate Plus members. If you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. If you're not, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. The Supreme Court heard arguments in a pair of cases this week challenging laws passed by Florida and Texas designed to prevent social media companies. Incidentally, what is a social media company? That is a good question. From removing, hiding, or downplaying conservative speech on their platforms, a coalition of tech companies challenged the laws, and a whole set of arguments that came out are really quite fascinating. But before we get to those social media cases, let's start briefly with the news that the court will take its own sweet time on the presidential immunity claim that uh, Trump is making as regards to the January 6th criminal case he's, he's facing. Uh, and that may well delay any possible criminal trial of Trump, certainly in the January 6th case, until after the election. So, so Emily, do you want to just orient us around th- this uh, immunity case and, and when the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on it and when that means a decision is likely and what that would mean for a criminal trial? The Supreme Court is going to hear arguments on April 22nd, and that means that it's likely that a decision won't come until the end of the court's term at the end of June. Now, of course, it's possible they could rule sooner, but they're not moving this with some, you know, speed of light alacrity. And all of this just is a big gift-wrapped present for Donald Trump because delay has been his tactic all along. If the court rules at the end of June, could a trial really get underway before the election? I mean, it's not impossible, but every day that passes makes it more difficult. And what to me is just, I mean, I have to say infuriating about this. I woke up fuming in the middle of the night about it, is that this is a slam dunk legal question that has been answered cogently and soberly by two lower courts. Um, The Supreme Court could just let the D.C. Circuit ruling stand that explains in great detail why a president cannot have utter and complete immunity for every single thing he did in office like writ large. I mean, just think about that. It's breathtaking. It's like saying that we have a king, that while you're in office, you can do absolutely anything with impunity. The idea that the court has to take months to, you know, stroke its chin over these arguments, I just don't get it. One thing that was confusing in the initial reaction to this is a lot of supporters of, uh, or a a lot of people on the left said, this is, this is outrageous. They're suggesting there's a, um, there's some question to figure out here. And then other people said, no, the court is deciding possibly 
we don't know what it's deciding. But one one avenue is that the court could decide this is such an issue of import that the court must speak because there's no precedent for it. And that it was still possible that you could have uh, a nine to nothing on the side of all the rational things you said, which is the country was not founded with this idea in mind. Oh, it's totally possible it'll be nine to nothing, though yeah, I really doubt yeah. it. It'll be seven to two. Let's be real. Like Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito are going to vote on the other side, perhaps. But even if it's nine to nothing, the time they are taking is essential. And so, yes, in an ideal world with all the time in the world, the Supreme Court would settle this ridiculous but important unsettled question in American law and not leave it for the next time. But we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a world in which it is entirely possible that someone that's facing major criminal indictment will win the presidency with this shadow unresolved, and then the case will be postponed indefinitely, and we'll never get an answer. And I just feel like there is something really untoward about that. Like It makes the country's legal system seem very shaky and unserious. And that will be happening. Donald Trump will have thumbed his nose, successfully gotten away with all of these dodges as he becomes president again for the next four years. Think about that. Isn't the argument, and maybe this is what I, I felt this is where you were going, John, isn't the argument that if you assume for the, for the sake of argument that Donald Trump is going to become president again, isn't it important that the Supreme Court will have issued such a ruling saying that presidents are criminally liable for their behavior and absent if they had if they had simply kicked forward a DC circuit opinion you're missing this clarion crystal judgment by the highest court in the land and so it puts the trump administration on notice about that that would be an argument for it that's a that's an argument and then you just have to weigh it against all the other problems but yes that's true and the other problems can we just eliminate some of them i mean so the one is basically that um, the Supreme Court takes its time. Then Judge Tanya Chutkin says, OK, we can start the clock again, which means some number of months to allow the two teams to prepare because they've been told to stop and put their pencils down for the moment. So that takes some number of months. Then the trial itself has to take place. That's if everybody's, everything's moving along on ice. Obviously, Trump's uh, strategy has been to delay. So there'll be lots of delays. And then so Basically, you could have a situation in which the trial doesn't take place or um, and then Trump, if Trump wins, he basically shutters everything because he now controls the Justice Department. Um, the other challenge is to Merrick Garland. Right. So the, the, let's say the court decides, comes out. Then suddenly there are going to be pieces every day in all your major newspapers from people saying, well, you know, shouldn't he shouldn't he let the people decide um, and tell you know, Smith to step down. Now, presumably Garland will, will say, look, I didn't tell her what to do. And so I'm not going to tell Smith, but it's going to be a topic of conversation, you know, every day. Uh, um, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, ev ev the more we get into the heat of the political season and campaigning, the more legitimate the arguments against having someone on trial while they are the presidential nominee of a major party become. Then I should also mention that Remember the Mar-a-Lago documents case in Florida, that judge who is a Trump appointee is on Friday uh, revisiting the whole question of when that trial might happen. I think it's currently scheduled for May, but she could postpone that. And of course, we have all the issues going on with the Georgia prosecution, which is a giant case. And it's really hard to see how that could go on trial before November, even if Fannie Willis wasn't under scrutiny. So we're looking at the hush money trial in Manhattan, the kind of smallest, least significant case is the only one that seems to be on track. Can I raise one possible question, which is, OK, let's say the, the 
the trial doesn't take place. Is it a certainty in this world that having January 6th and Donald Trump's role in it, with all the footage of the attackers on the 6th waving their Trump flags and all the testimony from Trump insiders um, at the center and his um, insistence that, that the election was stolen, which is an act of delusion, that having that in the center of the campaign all the way to the end is so great for Donald Trump. I mean, I get how how he doesn't want to have a trial. But in terms of what the election is about, I mean, if you look at Donald Trump assert that he won in his interview with Brett Baer of Fox News, it was the like locked teeth delusion of a person who really believes that. And I is having that all the way through to the election. Is that super great for uh, Trump? I mean, the rational answer would be no. But like, is it going to move enough voters? Let's go to this uh, this case that was argued already in the Supreme Court. So, um, Emily, it's such a fascinating set of issues, and and I guess they hinge on a bunch of key questions. But one is: Are social media platforms common carriers like telephone companies, where what is said can't be constrained by the operator? Are they more like newspapers or bookstores, where they make decisions about what to emphasize and promote based on their judgment? And if the federal government tries to stop the platform from exercising editorial judgment? Is it protecting free speech of politically politically moderated posters who are who would otherwise be suppressed? Or is it infringing on the free speech of the platforms to moderate it? So, whoa. I know. It is really interesting. We are talking about two state governments, Florida and Texas here, not the federal government. You're absolutely ready to kind of search for an analogy. And I think... Um, the Texas law only applies to platforms, right? And so this analogy of the telephone company seems to not be apt in that context. Like when you're talking about the things you see on your feed that everybody else can see, then this idea of, um, well, you can't interfere with the private messages, people, what people are saying over the phone, that doesn't seem like it really works. Whereas in Florida, their law potentially covers like Gmail and Facebook Messenger, the things that are people talking to each other that other people can't hear and see. So that's like one distinction here. Then there's this larger question about whether what the platforms do when they moderate content is exercising editorial judgment. And what the platforms are saying is, yes, for purposes of our First Amendment rights, this is our speech. We're making decisions. We're we're blocking hate speech because we think it's offensive. That's our decision about what to say. Florida and Texas came in and said, you can't do that because this is the public square. But the longtime doctrine in this area is that if you're a private speaker and social media platforms are private corporations, right, then yes, you can manage content. Um, and the government cannot require you to talk or require you not to let someone else talk. There is a real irony here, which is that um, last year, the platforms were arguing to the Supreme Court that they had immunity from lawsuits under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act because they were not the same as newspapers and they weren't really editors. And, oh, no, like what we do is not speech for that purpose. And so there were some biting moments at argument where Justice Alito in particular was pushing Paul Clement, the lawyer for... Um, the social media platforms on that. And I am really interested in that. But these laws do seem like they're really problematic um, for what social media platforms actually do without being able to moderate content with things like hate speech and disinformation. They become total cesspools and then their customers don't want to be there anymore, at least presumably. 
Well, as from a public policy standpoint, couldn't you make the case that, well, if that's the case and nobody wants to be there anymore, the market decides and it collapses because it's a cesspool and that that's a better outcome than having the government pick winner, winners and losers? Isn't the public policy case that's more dangerous, more powerful that they become a cesspool and there's misinformation and people still still keep going, that customers keep flocking to it and it then becomes the news source and that, you know, spoils um, public life because you're basically giving a megaphone to things that are that undermine uh, public life. Does the government's interest in the First Amendment extend to a duty to help create spaces where reasonable discussion can occur? I feel like the one of the responsibilities, obviously, there's a First Amendment, which infringes on the government's ability to stop people from speaking. But does the government have any affirmative responsibility to allow spaces where conversation can be humane and productive to occur? Or does it not at all? That's a great question. Our First Amendment doctrine is not about creating humane and productive spaces. It's about saying that if it is truly a public forum, then the government can't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. Now, all of this is different from what social media platforms can do because they are private entities. Yeah. I also think there's this, there's this important point that I can't remember who made it, is that the Florida and Texas explicitly passed these laws to advance conservative speech. And it seems like the Supreme Court should look very much askance at a government effort to explicitly help a particular political interest. It's not merely a neutral thing that they're doing. They're literally doing this so that they would advance conservative speech. They said this in passing it. And that is a that's a problem. Yeah. And they were making up a fake concern because the social media platforms have been excellent for conservative speech. If the facts of the case were different and it was being suppressed, isn't that some isn't that cause enough for somebody to step in and say, wait, the free speech rights of these, you know, pro-abortion rights people are being suppressed in, you know, Alabama? I mean, again, it just depends what your analogy is. If you're talking about Fox News as the analogy, then we are used to the idea that Fox News can promote certain political viewpoints and suppress others and nobody blinks an eye. If you're talking about it being, you know, like the town square or (laughs) the telephone company, then no, we become uncomfortable again. And the problem is social media companies are none of those things. I mean, my own favorite metaphor for them is a mall, because I think at a mall, you don't think a lot about whether you're in private or public space until maybe the mall cops show up and they're not the police. And that is analogous, right? The content moderators are not government actors. They are privately hired forms of security because this is a corporation and you are in a corporate space, right? You're in Disney World, effectively. And that is just really hard for us to quite figure out what to do with because they have so much power. I mean, in some ways, because they're international and they can't be governed by any one national government, they're more powerful than anyone else. But we, our First Amendment just doesn't sit comfortably with that role. One of the, th- the things I was also unclear on was how much of this has to do with the social media companies literally not publishing speech, like stopping it from being published, banning people, and how much of it has to do with not emphasizing it, not not giving it prominence. Because I think there are different things. Like there's no, you know, you can you can publish a book, but a bookstore doesn't have to stock it prominently, put it in the window. And is is the main complaint that the social media companies are literally preventing you from posting your hateful screed? Or is it they 
are just declining to show your hateful screed to anybody except you. I mean, they do both those things. They do actually delete some posts. They much more, I think, look at what you're posting and then change whether they amplify your speech or not. And I think the um, argument that they get to decide what to amplify and how the algorithms are going to work and that that's an editorial set of judgments. Like to me, that totally makes sense. I just also think it applies in the Section 230 context. And I think this whole broad immunity from lawsuits is something that the government, the courts and the Congress should revisit. One of the ed- interesting edge cases for me is like group chats and and more like the WhatsApp, the sort of group chats, mm-hmm. which had lots and lots of people in them, which are sort of public, but not exactly public, but can be filled with extremely hateful or or uh, incendiary speech and whether those because those are on the one hand are they private communication channels more like the phone or are they public because they're widespread groups and they're they're almost like broadcasting i don't know if they'll decide on that that's a really good question. I mean, some of these questions really should go back to the lower courts for more perusal. And there's a whole problem in this case, which is that they were brought under what's called a facial challenge, which means that a law that regulates speech can succeed only if the challengers can demonstrate that the law is substantially overbroad. Because of that posture of the case, um, there's just some confusion about how the court is going to sort out these underlying questions. I think they'll just figure it out. They'll issue an order that probably strikes down the law. Laws. That's what this direction they were seem to be going in, but also leaves a lot of the details to get sorted out later. That's my guess. Mitch McConnell will step down as the Republican Senate leader and the longest serving Republican Senate leader at the end of this year, although he'll continue, he says, to serve out his term, which ends in 2026. It has been an incredible run for the Kentucky senator. The undoubted capstone achievement being the blocking of Merrick Garland's appointment to the Supreme Court in 2016 to succeed Justice Scalia, thus preserving a conservative majority on the court, and then also quite likely, very, I mean, I think almost inarguably winning Trump the presidency. He's the most effective, cold-blooded, deal-making senator of our lifetime. And as he left, he, he offered this wonderful analysis of about why he was going. Believe me. I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. John, what does he mean when he says he understands the politics of the moment and and that's why he's leaving? It's such a great question. He's such a fascinating character. And in the same way McKay Coppins wrote about Romney as a way to think about politics in this moment, um, Mitch McConnell and the course of his career starting uh, as a Reagan Republican and where he is now, actually going back even to when he worked in the Senate before he was a senator uh, in a much more liberal kind of Republican party. He was, at, a, the, he was at the March on Washington. Uh, What does it mean? Okay, I think what it means, it can mean one of two things. I talked to Paul Kane of the Washington Post about this on um, Wednesday night. And I said, basically, is he admitting when he says that, that this is Donald Trump's party and he has no place in it? And Paul said, not exactly. He's admitting that on his position on Ukraine and his view of the way the Senate works and should work is out of step with his party, which is effectively saying the same thing. 
but I think makes a smart distinction, which is that a lot of the forces that have now swamped the kind of republicanism and the kind of institutional interest that McConnell has started before Donald Trump. And Trump is both grew out of them and then infl- and then inflamed them. I mean, so the Tea Party movement, the the kinds of senators who replaced the ones that that McConnell used to be able to work with on his own team, those have been brought in by forces that are beyond just Donald Trump. Um, uh, one of the great examples is Rob Portman in Ohio, a guy who wanted to get stuff done was, you know, an old fashioned Republican, low tax, pro-trade, um, anti-Russia, but would work within the institution to get things done with Democrats replaced by J.D. Vance. None of those things. Um, and also J.D. Vance, a kind of public Mike Pence wasn't right to certify the vote kind of Republican going out and talking all the time. Portman went out and talked when it was about you know, lowering marginal rates or other kind of technical things. Um, And so is a more boisterous play to the cameras kind of Republican, which is a harder kind of Republican to deal with when you're a majority leader. And whoever the next majority leader is, it's going to be a real challenge. So, Emily, I think I admire McConnell. I obviously don't admire what he's done, but I find him a remarkable figure. Will the country miss his form of extremely conservative but pragmatic deal-making, or will it not? Chuck Schumer was definitely like pouring one out for McConnell, right? I mean, they've worked together for a long time, and I think Schumer said, obviously, we disagree, you know, vehemently, but I could trust McConnell. I knew where he stood. It was straightforward. Um, You knew what you were getting. What is likely to come next is someone who is more beholden to Donald Trump. And those politics are so mercurial and whimsical, right? And that's how you have the kind of collapse of the deals that they've been trying to make in the last few months with McConnell standing there saying, it's really important that we don't let Russia take over Ukraine. Putin is our enemy. Not a clear message that one hears from Donald Trump or the elements of the Republican Party who are so loyal to him. John, how how much of McConnell's success do you think had to do with him not really caring about being liked? Thus, he was willing to sort of absorb the heat, to be unpopular for things that he wanted to get a win on and to to take the heat off of his colleagues. Was that what made him effective or was it something else? I always, I always l- admired in him that he was such an unlikable figure. You've put your finger on a crucial, if not the crucial thing. What a source time Matt Storff used to say, most important thing to know about um, about uh, Mitch McConnell is his pain threshold. He has an extraordinarily high pain threshold. He doesn't mind being disliked. Um, his, his autobiography is called The Long Game, which is essentially in the course of human history and American history, things even out over time. And if you trust in the long game, um, the momentary freakouts um, get evened out. It's basically the you know the same version people um, uh, use to invest in the stock market, right? And and Biden believed in that. I'm I, I think the long game is under real uh, debate at the moment. Um, that in other words, we are in such a highly transactional history gets written ten seconds ago moment. That's a topic for another time. But I think you're precisely right, David, um, that he was willing to take the heat. That he only spoke as he used to say and was true. Only spoke to the press. Uh, when it was in his interest and he needed to, he didn't feel the need to constantly be in front of the cameras. That's, of course, antithetical to the modern Republican Party and 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 slivers of the Democratic Party, where being in front of the cameras all the time is crucial. Um, and uh, uh, so I think that's I think that's quite 
uh, quite important and perhaps most important when it came to blocking Merrick Garland, um, which was a break with Senate tradition um, and something that basically McConnell steamrolled. Um, and it's interesting the notion of power with a majority leader because it has changed under McConnell's feet. The majority leader is not as powerful as people say. It's just that he had people like Rob Portman and Lamar Alexander and others who were senators with his own party who sort of shared the same worldview and he could corral them and they were the, the, you know, his biggest part of his block and that could get other people like to kind of fall in line over time. But it didn't always work. I mean, Jesse Helms, when you talk about the like most cold blooded, uh, Jesse Helms was pretty cold blooded, too. Um, now there are, you know, it used to be that McConnell had to deal with like Ted Cruz, who, you know, was ultimately embarrassed himself when he tried to um, to to kill Obamacare. But now there's like a block of like, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 of these kinds of Republicans. So the job was never one where you could rule with an iron fist. And when you have a more restive caucus, um, it makes it that much harder. Um, and so pain threshold only gets you so far because there's you don't get any there's no gain for the pain you're you're experiencing. But that pain threshold was not high enough to stand up against Trump's election lie much earlier than he ultimately did. The senders touted as his most likely replacement are John Thune of South Dakota, who is the Senate whip. Republican whip, John Cornyn of Texas, who had had leadership for many years, though hasn't been in leadership, and John Barrasso of Wyoming. They're all kind of in the same mode. Barrasso, a little bit more conservative than the others. They're all pretty conservative, but also on the deal-making side of of the ledger. Um, a, will one of them certainly get it? And B, is it, John, you're sort of implying that it, it won't be possible to lead in the way that McConnell has been leading, even if you have that temperament? I think it's not possible to, I mean, unless you do what the kind of, I think, no, I think it's just not possible. Um, there's too much benefit to being, there's a great story that was told about Hubert Humphrey. And I guess it was maybe Mike Mansfield, who was a majority leader at the time, who was the previous record holder of the longest serving majority leader before McConnell, that basically Hubert Humphrey came to the, came to the Capitol, came to Washington and was like, I'm going to do this and that. And he had press conferences and he was bouncing around. And he was like making a name for himself. And either Mansfield or some other senior bull said, you know, buddy, um, that's cute and all, but like, you're never going to get a committee assignment. You're never going to have any power to actually do any of the stuff that you say you want to do unless you, you know, kind of follow the rules and norms of the inside game. Right. So, okay. That was just a very previous Senate uh, Senate. Now all of your power comes from showing up on TV, raising money, being super online and being incendiary. So that's really hard to, to control. I think that Again, I'm just stealing from Paul here. Um, whoever gets this job will have had to have corralled and gotten the blessing of the kind of new MAGA, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz types. Um, and to do that, you will have to have the implicit or explicit blessing of Trump. And if that's the case, Donald Trump will make you an unhappy person very quickly. If for no other reason than Trump likes to remind people that they owe him and they and he embarrasses them. I mean, look at this is not exactly analogous, but look at what he did to Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham after he won South Carolina and New Hampshire. After New Hampshire, he turns to Tim Scott and says, boy, you must really hate Nikki Haley. I mean, she appointed you to a senator and yet you're endorsing me, making Tim Scott shrinking him down to a tiny little person. 
embarrassing him at this moment of glory for Trump. Like he didn't have to go and embarrass the guy who had endorsed him. It's Lindsey Graham. He introduces him to the crowd in South Carolina after he wins and says, Lindsey's to the left of everybody here on the stage and the whole crowd boos. I mean, so when when that is the kind of um, uh, reward structure you're dealing with, whoever is named majority leader, Trump will take credit for the naming in the way he took credit for shooting down Tom Emmer in the House speakership race. And then that person will constantly have to deal with Trump saying either I got you here and now you're bucking me or patting them on the head and saying thank you for doing what I wanted you to do. By the way, just back to the structural thing. The Senate's already do the Republicans in the Senate are already doing that with respect to Trump. I mean, they killed immigration reform because of him. They uh, Chuck Grassley said he doesn't want to vote for the new tax bill because it's going to help Biden. And uh, and they are essentially killing Ukraine aid, Lindsey Graham says, because Trump doesn't want it. So either very explicitly or implicitly, they're already doing what Trump wants them to do. Um, and that's going to be a mess for whoever the next the next Republican leader is. God. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're when you're trying to drink one off, Emily Bazelon, trying to drink away the despair that that final Dickersonian comment left me with. What are you going to be chattering about? I unfortunately have only more doom and gloom to offer, which is that Louisiana seems to be on the brink of ending parole for people who are in prison, much diminishing the power of good time credits, like the idea that you can spend a little less time in prison because of your behavioral record there and your accomplishments, like if you do educational programs. And also, they seem to be thinking about ending the credit you get for the time you're in prison before you're on trial, like your pre-trial time wouldn't count. Yes, isn't How that can crazy? that be? Well, that can't be constitutional. It seems How can that be constitutional? bananas to me. I don't understand it. I mean, judges could obviously still take it into account, but it just, uh, yeah, I that I find the whole thing breathtaking. I mean, you know, the thing about all of these mechanisms is that they're ways of making giving people incentive to improve their lives in prison, right? Like good time gives you a reason to take um, educational courses if they're available to you and to not have a lot of rule violations. Um, and parole, the, the data in Louisiana shows that people are less likely to um, be convicted again if they get out and they are on parole because there are things that are actually helpful sometimes about having someone who's monitoring and supervising you, though obviously that can become burdensome as well. Anyway, this all just seems so draconian and back to this kind of tough on crime idea that you just like treat people who are in prison as brutally as possible. And that's somehow like that is a form of revenge that supersedes what we should be thinking about, which is like helping them do better when they get out for their own sake and for all of our sakes. Um, it's really seems super misguided, but that's all too possible in Louisiana. Great. Thanks, John. How about you? <laughs> Uh, well, an, an anonymous bidder paid $3.72 million for a box of unopened hockey trading cards from the 1970s. At, that was at auction, uh, I guess, about a week ago. And so this this uh, brings to the fore basically Schrodinger's sports card paradox, which is uh not what anybody calls it, but what I call it. So as you may remember, the tale of Schrodinger's cat was a paradox made up by the physicist. In this thought experiment, the cat who was in a box that was closed and with a sealed lid was both alive and dead. 
right up until you open the lid of the box. But then you wouldn't know whether you had opening the lid had killed the cat or the cat was dead in the box itself beforehand. Anyway, so this box of hockey trading cards could contain enormous treasures, including so there are 48 packs in there, which means there might be as many many as 30 rookie cards from Wayne Gretzky, one of the greatest players to ever play hockey. And one of those rookie cards recently sold for more than three million dollars. So that's what could be in the box. Or the box could contain packs and packs and packs and packs of players who have been long forgotten to everybody, to everybody, but their to everybody, but their mother. And they have in their rec rooms uh, uh, with the paneled walls, faded photographs of them on the ice from the 1970s, you know, flashing a toothy grin at people passing on the shag rug. And there could be no value in these cards. Um, and so, uh, plus it would have some old, like discarded uh, old, um, rotten gum, but anyway, so what does the owner do if they want to resell the box that is unopened for a profit? The, the auction house said, yeah. don't open it. Yeah. But I mean, oh my God, what if you opened it and you had all of these amazing cards in there? I feel like Schrodinger never had a cat because if you've ever tried to put a cat in a box, it is practically impossible. You know what? I think the, here's the thing. If you're trying to sneak by a theory about quantum physics and you don't want other items to interrupt the flow of thought, you make it a cat because people have lower opinions of the passage of a cat. Yeah. If you put the dog in, people are going to be talking. They're going to be worried a lot more about the dog. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What kind of dog was it? Exactly. It had a walk already. Oh, yeah. my God. It's a beagle. I love beagles. Did it pee right? in the box? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my chatter is... I read a wonderful novel, a wonderful novel, which I commend to you, especially Emily Bazelon. It's called Plain Song. It's by Kent Haroof. Uh, oh, Emily is shaking her fist enthusiastically. It's like Gilead, but if Gilead were happy, uh, if Gilead <laughs> weren't gruesome and depressing, uh, or it's like a modern Willa Cather novel. It's about, it's a novel set in a small town in Colorado in the 1980s, and it's about some various sorts of lonely people who connect and have extremely minor problems that they need to resolve. And it's beautiful. And it, you know what else it reminded me of actually, actually Emily is understood Betsy. Also mm, the, such a good book. The, it's the, great the that you childhood, were thinking of that. Yeah. The, the kid's book um, about a girl who's, who's sent to live with, with a, a family she doesn't know um, because there's a person who ends up living with a, with a, not her family in this, book and it's a it's wonderful anyway i loved it so much so plain song by kent haroof maybe i'll go reread that it was so good that book and i don't remember it yeah and there, it, it seems to be part of a trilogy so i just i just got a notice actually as we were taping that the next book is on hold at the library for me so i'm gonna go, go get that um also uh, self-interested chatter which is that citycast is hiring hiring big time we are hiring in nashville and austin and Houston. And uh, if you go to citycast.fm slash jobs, we're hiring podcast producers, podcast hosts, newsletter editors in those cities. And uh, we're going to be launching in Austin and Nashville in the spring. And in Houston, we're hiring a new executive producer to uh, lead that great team uh, in, in the podcast newsletter that already exists. So it's creating daily local podcasts for those cities. So if you're in Austin, Nashville can be in Austin, Nashville, love Austin, Nashville, and want to cover them, uh, please reach out. You can e also email me 
davidplotz at gmail.com, but citycast.fm slash jobs for those listings. Listeners, you have uh, great chatters. You've emailed them to us at gabfestatslate.com. We really appreciate them. There have been a lot coming in. There were two glorious ones. One we almost even turned into a Slate Plus segment, but it was Emily, Emily, it's like a minute too late in suggesting that. Um, but our listener chatter this week comes from Jacob in Chicago, Illinois. Hey, GabFest. Jacob here from Chicago, Illinois. For my listener chatter, I bring you a GabFest favorite. Strode's. The TikTok account at Cities by Diana has some of the best car-centric content on the internet. Riley written as if for fans of Strode's, what Diana calls oil-pilled pavement princesses or dyed-in-the-wool autobrains. This account rips into Cities' poor urban planning. My favorites were the takedowns of San Jose, California and Breezewood, Pennsylvania. There is, of course, a ranking of the top Strode's in America, including one so bad it's considered a stryway. As a spoiler, number one is U.S. Route 19, the Strode in the Vox article that started it all. The sardonic, satirical content will make you laugh, then cry, and then look at the built environment around you with a more critical eye. Happy Stroding! That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan, back from her winter vacation in Yellowstone. Ask her about the bison. Ask her about the buffalo. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And please come to our live show in D.C. on March 27th. Tickets at slate.com slash gabfestlive. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? A key element of the Republican investigation of the Biden crime family appeared to uh, disintegrate last week with the arrest of Alexander Smirnoff. Smirnoff, you may have heard, he appears to be the only source of the most explosive claim against Joe and Hunter Biden, which is that they each took a $5 million bribe to help the Ukrainian energy company uh, Burisma. But rest assured, rest assured, listeners, that Smirnoff's arrest will not slow, deter, in any way uh, alter the massive investigation into Hunter Biden, presidential brother James Biden, and others involving claims that they they conspired with President Biden to corruptly do business in China and Ukraine, and also computers and also drugs and taxes and everything else. So there's this amazing stat, I don't know if you guys saw this, and from Matt Iglesias, which is that there have been 70 hours of Hunter Biden hearings and 13 bills related to Hunter Biden. I doubt there have been 70 hours of hearings about the budget or Ukraine, congressional hearings, or Ukraine aid, or the Gaza war, or income inequality, or anything. What is going on with this obsession, John? I think what's going on is what we were kind of talking about earlier in the change in the, in the reward structure of the modern Republican Party. All parties have to one way or another rewarded their most partisan uh, scrappers in the public square. But I mean, this is now the entire business of government. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.